or the staffers, uh, next week is our five-year anniversary as a church, and so we get to celebrate stories like that as we just look back at all that God has done. And we celebrate five years as a church, ultimately because we celebrate that Christ is risen, uh, that the Lord has come, that he took on death in our place, laid death in the grave, and he is alive if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name's Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. I want you to know that whether you call the Oaks Church home or you are a first-time guest, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, I know that it can be kind of hard to be in a new place, and so uh, just know that we've only been meeting here since September, so we're all kind of new. So if you're new with us, then welcome. I hope that you feel at home this morning, uh, whether you're visiting us from another church home or you haven't been to church in years, maybe you're still trying to kind of figure out uh, where you're at in your faith or uh, this is one of many Easter's that you have gathered to worship the Lord. I believe that God has something specific to say to you out of his word. And so find Mark chapter 10 if you have a copy of God's word. It will be on the screen behind me as well. If you are a guest with us, you don't have a Bible, we would love nothing more than to give you one as you exit today. So meet me at the connect table, grab one there. I will also have a gift for you just to say thanks for worshiping with us today. Now, as you turn to Mark 10, we're going to be looking at the specific story of a man that has a conversation with Jesus, a man who had a very good life by all worldly standards. That's interesting, the phrase, living my best life, has kind of become popular over the past couple years. Uh, living my best life is a caption, maybe to describe that picture-perfect moment. Living my best life uh, could be how you feel. That, that moment that you mark off one of your bucket list items. There, there you're standing in this place. You can't believe that it actually exists, and there you are. And maybe living your best life is that moment whenever you write the, the last payment on your car. You're like, finally, this burden is off of me. I feel so good about this. Maybe living your best life would be being your own boss. I don't know what that is for you. But whenever we look at Mark 10, we're going to see a man in which people would look at his life and say, that guy is living his best life. Maybe you have had those moments where it, it felt like if I just got there, it would feel like I was living my best life. But so many of us have walked across the stage. We've been handed the diploma, the degree that we worked so hard for. And then we're just kind of left wondering, okay, what's next? Is this, is, it, is this it? There's got to be something more. Maybe you've moved into the dream home and you're not even done unpacking your boxes yet. And you're like, okay, we could remodel this, maybe an addition here. Why is that so often the case? Could it be that you're actually longing for something more? You see, in Mark 10, we come to a man who was young, probably healthy, strong. He's wealthy. He has all of these religious accolades to his name, and yet he still finds that something is missing. And so he runs to Jesus. He's going to drop down at the feet of Jesus, and he's going to say, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he had everything but that. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed a longing deep inside every human heart in which you are hardwired for eternity and you will be satisfied in nothing else 
until you know for certain what it means to have eternal life. And whenever the Bible talks about eternal life, it speaks of it in both ways of quantity, forever with God, everlasting life with God, but also quality, a peace that is unshakable that only God can provide, a joy that is found only in communion, in personal relationship with God, rest for weary souls found only in the finished work of the resurrection of Christ. And so this man goes searching because he has everything, every longing in his life perhaps that the world could offer him on a silver platter had been given to him, and yet he longed for eternal life. And so he asks this question, and the good news of the gospel is that Christ came not only to answer that question for us, but to be the answer for us. That because Christ lives, he can offer us eternal life. And so in Mark chapter 10, that's my aim, is to show you that because Christ lives, he can offer us eternal life. Now, we are continuing our series in the book of Mark, but what a great place to be this morning. The book of Mark is, is great because it was written by Peter's intern, Mark. The apostle Peter kind of gave all of these stories. This is his recollection of eyewitness accounts written here so that we could know who Christ is and what that means for us. So if you have your copy of God's Word, meet me in Mark chapter 13, or Mark 10, beginning in verse 13. We're going to spend most of our time in verses 17 through 31. But we'll get a head start, begin in verse 13. God's word says this. And they were bringing children to him, these parents of kids, that he might touch them and the disciples, they rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Here we see that these children are brought to Jesus. And he says, if you're to truly inherit the kingdom of God, you must become like one of these children. Coming empty-handed, completely dependent. And what great contrast that provides whenever we look at the next man that comes up in verse 17. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus and the disciples are walking, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. 
Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pause there. In this passage, we are going to see the three movements. First, a question. Then we're going to encounter a problem. And then ultimately, we will see the solution. First, the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting that in verse 17, as Jesus is taking his disciples toward Jerusalem, the tension is growing as they go to the place in which he prophesied that he would lay down his own life. And as they're walking, they hear, they hear a voice. Wait, it cries. They turn, and a man comes running in a really nice robe. He falls down. He kneels before Christ in the equivalent of what would be like an Armani suit in today's standards. And there he is before, before Jesus, and he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I would have loved to have seen the look on the disciples' faces because it was typical for someone who was sick or suffering to come running to Jesus. But look at this man. We're going to later see in this passage that he had great wealth. Uh, we see in the book of Matthew, whenever he tells the story that this man was young, uh, whenever Luke tells this same story, he says that he was a leader, most likely a religious leader of that time period. So here he is, he runs before Jesus, probably in his 20s or 30s, a man with most likely great health, great strength, yet it's not enough. He, he comes maybe as a religious leader, knows a lot about God, maybe has even done a lot of things for God, and yet still feels like he doesn't truly know God. So he comes before Jesus. His wealth, his success was not enough. He still had a question he couldn't shake. He laid in his king-sized bed at night with religious degrees decorating his wall and his two-story house with his three-car garage and said, there's got to be something more. This can't be it. And so he asked, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Now let me ask, is that a question that you have asked? Is that a question that you have wrestled with? What can I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that is before us. And perhaps you haven't thought about it at length. I get it. Life is busy. There are a ton of responsibilities. The distractions are limitless in this world. But God has given you this moment now to consider forever, to consider your relationship with God. If you had to answer that question, what would it be? Perhaps you've just settled to know there's no way to know the answer to that question. Maybe your answers are unsatisfying and you just simply pushed them to the corner of your mind. But let me plead with you. The stakes are too high to leave this question up to chance. I mean, consider what is implied by this man's question. If he's asking, what must he do to inherit eternal life, then what is the alternative? Eternal death. You see, whenever God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden and he said, if you eat of that tree, if you disobey me, you will surely die. And we know what happened. They ate of the tree. And at that moment, death entered in. Whenever the Bible talks about death, it talks about death in two ways, physical death and spiritual death. Physical death 
is whenever our soul is separated from our body, and spiritual death is whenever our soul is separated from God. And yet Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The wages, the paycheck that we have all earned for sinning against a holy God is death. And while this sounds like terrible news, understand that in the same way that gray and frigid winters prepare us for the spring flowers that would bloom, the reality of sin and death helps us understand the goodness of God's grace and mercy in the cross and in the resurrection. We see the effects of sin. We see it out there, do we not? We see the impact of sin as wars are shown on our news feeds. We see the impact of sin as tornadoes lay claim to entire neighborhoods. And yet the impact of sin gets even closer to home, does it not? Sin reveals its sharp fangs and racist remarks and the suffering felt by a miscarriage when you've already celebrated with your family. We feel the suffering of sin when a marriage feels broken and all hope feels lost. And yet we know that sin is not only observed through our window, but in the mirror. You see, Romans 3.10 says that no one is good. No, not one. And whenever we consider our lives against the great 10 commandments of God, however good we feel is dismantled in that moment. Because God says, don't lie, and man, we know we've stretched the truth. It says, don't steal, and oh, we've used company time for our own gain. Have we not? Taking a long lunch, taking something that's not ours. Jesus comes along and says, hey, you've heard it said that if you've committed adultery, that is sin. But if you've even committed lust in your heart, that is equivalent to adultery. If you've ever taken the name of God in vain, you've committed blasphemy. So for those of us who once thought we were good before God, simply looking at four commandments, come before a holy and righteous God and admit, I am a lying, thieving, adulterer, blasphemer at heart. What hope is there for me? And only against that bleak backdrop does the work of Christ appear in its full glory and radiant beauty. You see, that's why Jesus paused when this man said, good teacher. Well, look with me at verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, this, this moment that Jesus pushes back a little bit to this man who thinks he's a really good man, he's saying, hey, why did you call me good? Because Jesus wants him to admit that he alone is good. Christ alone is good. He wants him to see that God alone is good. And Christ is God. The Son of God took on flesh, entered into time and space, coming before this man saying, you can present all the righteousness you want, and yet you will never be good enough. But Christ alone, he is good. And so as Jesus says, God alone is good. No one is good except God. Recognize your inadequacy and the sufficiency of Christ so that as you see him as substitute, you will see that he alone is worthy to fulfill the perfect obedience that was demanded of us in our place. He dismantles our self-sufficient pride to introduce his glorious mercy. Christian, let me invite you to remember this great story. Just how needy we were before we realized the gospel. 
that as we sing about the resurrection, that our hearts would explode and that our voices could not be loud enough to proclaim the praise of our God. And if you're here this morning and you're weary, you're exhausted, let me plead with you. Because this is true, you need more than a vacation. That you need to understand the glory of God made known to us in the gospel. You see, God crafted your heart to find its home in him. And yet sin has lured us out into the streets as orphans with no place to rest our weary head. Romans 8, 7 would say that the situation is so bad that our ability to to keep God's commands is not only improbable, it's impossible because our hearts are hostile to God apart from him. You see, if you've ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you have a great mental image of just how far we are from God because Isaiah 59.2 says that your sin has created a separation between you and God. You could get a running start and yet never clear the Grand Canyon. And despite your moral improvement, your most noble efforts, or your religious accolades, you can never work your way to God. Our only hope would be God coming for us, God coming to us. And what we will see is that the path of God is not one that we can trod, but that the path of God is a person who came to us, which leads us to recognize the problem. It is impossible to earn eternal life. It is impossible to earn eternal life. And until we recognize that problem, we will not see the great solution. Look again at verse 19. Jesus tells this man to look at the commandments. He was most likely a religious leader. He was a very religious guy, did a lot of good things. So he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Isn't it interesting that of the Ten Commandments that we know, he only lists off the six of them. He only lists off six commandments. Why? The last six. It's because the first four commandments deal with our vertical relationship with God. It deals more with the internal. The last six commandments that Jesus draws his attention to here, his primary focus, they're all external. And they deal with the way that we treat other people what's going on outside of our hearts. And yet, whenever Jesus brings these up, look at what he says in in verse 20. He says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. This guy says, since I was 12 years old, I've been blameless to these commands. I have kept every single one of them. And in verse 21, even though he's saying that he has kept these commands, Jesus is going to tell him that he still lacks something. Why? Because it is impossible to earn eternal life. It is impossible to work your way in to heaven. It was not enough. And maybe you feel that. Maybe you've tried to clean yourself up only to realize that your hands were muddy and you're just kind of spreading the sin around. Uh, maybe you've tried to fix yourself and you're saying, you know what? It's not working as much as I've tried. You see, if you try to make yourself right by practicing religion, you will find yourself on a treadmill of performance that just never stops. As Romans 3.23 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the, the law comes knowledge of sin. So what would it take? Well, Jesus loves this man enough to tell him. Look at verse 21. 
Do you see that? It says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved this man. This isn't about to be a gotcha moment for Jesus. He's compassionate toward him. He is warm toward him. Does this not reveal the accessibility of God, the kindness and favor of God, that he was not far off, but that he was right there in this man's midst, and he loved him? And yet this man was so self-deceived. Christ was trying to wake him up. He was like a man who was about to jump out of an airplane holding a backpack instead of a parachute. He was fully convinced that he would be okay, and yet only one of those things has the ability to bring life in the midst of a free fall. He was clinging to religion apart from a heart that knew God. It was completely empty. It would be worthless, and it would be of no avail to bring life. Do you see that Jesus loves you in the same way that he loved this man? That Jesus sees you, he knows you, he knows what's making you anxious right now. He knows that decision that is troubling you. He knows your past regrets, he knows your future hopes. And Jesus knows that the only way for you to truly have life is through him. He knows all your questions and he knows that he is the only answer. So he looks at you, he loves you, he speaks truth to you in the same way that he spoke to this man. And he said, you lack one thing. I'm sure at first that sounded like a relief for this guy who kind of felt like he had everything going for him. Only one thing? All right, what is it? And yet then Jesus told him, go and sell everything you have. Now that trips some people up because they want to know, well, is Jesus here kind of creating some sort of works righteousness? I have to do something in order to be right with God? No. Jesus is making a point. Whenever Matthew, the tax collector, became a follower of Jesus, he didn't have to empty his bank account. Whenever Zacchaeus follows Jesus, he gave back fourfold whatever he took, but he wasn't given the exact same command. Jesus here is after something far more costly than this man's possessions. He is after his heart. You see, there's a reason that Jesus didn't bring up the first four commands earlier, because he is about to prove that this man has broken the very first commandment of God. You know what it is? Command one, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And while this religious man might have not had a, a little figurine on his mantle, he didn't have a little carved image in his pocket, he had a God that he worshiped with his time, energy, and focus, and that God was his money. Whenever Jesus summarized the great commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And there was a part of this man's heart that did not belong to God. And so Christ is saying, give me that. Repent of that. Trust me completely. And we see his response in verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let me give you an analogy of, of what takes place in this passage, perhaps so that it could prevent you from making the same mistake. Now imagine for a moment that your work is doing this new program where you know, they're going to have a raffle at the end of the month. They're going to give away a 10-day vacation, all expenses paid, to a tropical place. You're going to a tropical resort. Excursions are included. All of your food is covered. Lodging is taken care of. Travel to everything. The drawing happens, and you win. It's your lucky day. Uh, you find out, man, I'm, I'm going you book the flight, everything is ready. You pack your bag, you head to the airport, you're there, you're going through TSA security, you're sipping on your Starbucks, you're just like, man, this is about to be great. And you get there, 
as you're about to go through TSA security and the security officer looks at you and says, you've got to get rid of your drink. You've got to toss it. And you look at your cup and it's still halfway full. It's a latte. It's really good. So you stare at it. And you're like, can't do it. You take one more sip. You turn. You walk around. Go to the parking garage. Head back to the office. Check in. Start reading your email. You stare at that empty cup and you wonder what could have been. That's exactly what happened to this man. Here, Jesus says, I'll give you treasures in heaven. Come follow me. Relinquish this thing. Turn from this thing that has a grip on your heart that you can have eternal life in a relationship with me. He says, no, half a cup of this latte is just too good. What is that for you? What is it that you would say, you know what? I just feel like this is just, this is too good. I just don't want to let this go. What is keeping you perhaps from completely trusting Jesus? Is it money? This man's identity was so wrapped up in his wealth that he would rather lose his soul than his seat in first class or degrade his status. Is it pride? You don't know what other people would think about you. And you're not even sure. You've got unanswered questions right now. You don't know what it means to completely follow Jesus. Maybe for you it's control. Well, man, if the past couple of years have proved anything, it is that control has always been a mirage. Why not submit your life to the one who is sovereign over everything? Is it religion? Maybe you're saying, you know what, I, I don't know, that, that just seems like radical Christianity to, to really follow Jesus in a way where I'm like spending time in the word and where I'm a part of a church and where I'm using my gifts. And, you know, I, I think I'm comfortable to just, you know, think that because I prayed a prayer, because I went to a Christian camp, because I was baptized at a young age, then I think I'm just good. Are you really clinging to that? Is it a relationship? Is it personal comfort? Is it possibly even a really good thing that is a gift from God, but has taken priority over God? And you're not trusting Christ with that. Where would you look at Jesus and say, no, anything but that? He is saying, come, follow me, repent, turn from that, and trust me with your life. And then he goes on to, to tell the disciples it is hard for a wealthy person to, to get into the kingdom of heaven. It would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle. And that metaphor is just as wild as it sounds. It seems impossible. Why is that? Because with our wealth and, and for us living in America, we are all wealthy by these standards. We often think we can be the solution to our own problems. So if we're sick, we go and buy medicine. We get a prescription. Whenever we're, you know, we don't want to think about life's problems, we can escape through music or a movie, whenever we need anything. We can just run to comfort, food or, or drink or whatever it is to kind of dull our pain. We think, I can, I can cope because I am self-sufficient through my means. And so then the disciples ask the question that should be on all of our minds. They say, then who could be saved if this guy, who we thought would be a great candidate for the kingdom of God, is going to completely miss it, then who can be saved? And that's whenever Jesus gives these words, with man it is impossible. It is impossible for man to earn his salvation. But with God, all things are possible. That's why Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is impossible for us to earn eternal life. Oh, but it is possible for God to give it. 
which is why Paul, whenever he wrote to the church in Ephesians, said this. He said that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is grace. Oh, Christian, doesn't this take the pressure off on your worst days, whenever you know you don't measure up, that you can look at Christ and his finished work on the cross and his perfect life on earth and say, oh, I'm blameless. I'm righteous in the sight of the Father. Because Christ has done everything needed. This is a great relief and this is rest in the midst of your exhaustion. Let me plead with you if you do not know Christ to come home. This man said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the great news of the gospel is that it has been done. This is the good news, if you'll receive it. That the rich cannot buy their way into heaven, and yet it is free for everyone. That the successful cannot work their way into heaven because Christ has already completed the work. That the religious are not able to make themselves righteous enough for heaven, but the perfect obedience of Christ is accredited to us, and we are made righteous in his place. You see, in this way, we make ourselves like the little children who came to Christ empty-handed, completely dependent, and receiving what we could never deserve, his presence. Listen to this promise in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So bring your sins. Gather all your faults and failures. Drag the skeletons out of your closet and throw them into the sea of God's grace. Because Micah 7.19 says they will be remembered no more because they will remain on the floor of an ocean of God's mercy. Whenever we see how good Jesus is, we would give up anything for him. That's what Peter says. Peter, considering these things in verses 28 through 31, says, look, we've left everything to follow you. He still remembers the day that he laid down his nets in his successful fishing business to follow Christ. And Christ says, yeah, and you'll receive 100-fold whatever you have lost for my name. There is great riches to be found in following Christ. There is great reward in both quantity and quality to know the eternal life of walking with God because whenever Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know me. Unending contentment, unshakable joy, immeasurable peace to be found in walking with Christ. Which leads us to the solution, verses 32 through 34. We read this, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The solution, that Christ has made eternal life a possible and present reality. 
They're going toward Jerusalem. They're going to the place in which Christ has prophesied his death and his resurrection. For the third time, Jesus told them exactly what would take place. He gives such stunning detail as to what will happen in the days to come that these words could only come from the omniscient and omnipotent God. And as we look again at this story a little closer, what we find is that there is not just one rich young ruler, but there's another rich young ruler. There's a greater rich young ruler who is Christ. You see, it was Christ who, being eternal son of God, who would become poor for our sake, as 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for our sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich, eternal life. Jesus ruled over all creation, as Colossians 1 says, upholding the universe by the word of his power. And yet he would come to earth to bring about a kingdom that was not of this world. See, it was just a matter of days before exactly as Christ has predicted these things would take place. So walk with me for a moment back to the garden. See Christ praying there as drops of sweat intermingled with blood drip from his brow, pleading with the Father, if this cup could pass from me, let it be, but your will be done. He lifts his head. He sees a familiar figure in the shadows. It's Judas, a companion, a friend, but now a traitor. And Jesus is seized. He's taken by the hands of lawless men and given an unfair trial and unfair as it was, everything was going according to God's plan. Dragged before Pilate, brought before Herod, interrogated, found completely blameless and unblemished. And yet he would still go to the cross. Why? Because 1 Peter 2.22 says that there would be no deceit found in him, no sin in his mouth. And yet as a sheep led before its shearers to the slaughter. He would go, the great shepherd would give his life up for those who never deserved it. And Pilate, finding no blame in him at all, yet still condemned him to die because he was swayed by political power. He just wanted to make the religious leaders of that day happy. And so he sentenced him to a method of death, a method of death designed for pain and torture. And while the Roman cross might have belonged to the empire, it symbolized the curse of God because Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse that we inherited because our sin would be laid upon Christ's shoulders as he was nailed to the cross. You see, sin must be punished by death. The wages of sin is death, but the great news is that it does not have to be your death, but that there can be a substitute in your place who is holy and righteous. You see the nails fastened his wrists to the cross, but it was our sin that held him there. And on that cross, Jesus became our substitute. He hangs there. He fulfills the Father's will, and upon his last breath says these words, it is finished. The rich young ruler asks, what must I do? And Christ says, it is done. It is finished. The work of redemption had been accomplished for all who would believe as Christ gave his last breath. His words echoed throughout Israel. 
the curtain, the temple that once separated God from man was torn in two from top to bottom. And now God and man could be brought into real relationship again through Christ. And yet for the disciples, it felt like hopes were dashed. The future was uncertain. Their lives were shaken. But the last few words of verse 34 were yet to be fulfilled when he says, after three days, he will rise. And three days passed. Sunday came. The ladies made their way to the tomb with spices to anoint the body of Christ. And yet whenever they get there, they see these war-hardened soldiers frozen like dead men. And they look upon an angel, and from his lips come these words, he is not here, for he has risen. In that moment, their confusion turned into awe as they realized that Christ is had indeed risen from the dead, that he had taken life as he defeated death, that sin and Satan were conquered, and that he rules victoriously as the king of life. Soon their faith became sight as Christ appeared to them, appeared to the disciples, and for 40 days presenting himself to himself, everyone, so that they could see the evidence that Christ was alive, Christ had been raised, and because Jesus is alive, he gives life to those who were dead. How could a dead man live? Is it because it may be impossible for man, but for God it is possible? So as we close, let's ask that question again. What must I do to inherit eternal life? As Mark 10, 17 says. Isn't it interesting that it's phrased in that way? Inherit. How does an inheritance work? Do you earn an inheritance? Do you try hard to get an inheritance? No. An inheritance is a gift that you receive upon the death of another. You see, eternal life is given as a great inheritance that we could never deserve upon the death and resurrection of Christ for all who would believe. So let me ask, do you have this eternal life? If you do, rejoice. Realize that whatever it is you may desire in this world, all sufficiency and satisfaction is found in Christ. Maybe you're here and you're, you're thinking, I'll just figure this out later. But as Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. As 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't be content to just say, well, I've done some religious things. I'm a pretty good person. I think that all things will pan out in the end and I think it will be all right. No, turn this day to Christ. Say, you are my only hope. Your death and your resurrection is my only hope. Sinner, come home. Turn to Christ and see that his resurrection gives you life. Maybe you're a Christian, but, but you found yourself clinging to things of the world. You're clinging to a relationship that you know doesn't honor God. You're clinging to uh, kind of something that you're thinking, well, nobody else knows about. And you're, just, you're, you're kind of trying to keep the last six commandments that make you look good on the surface. And yet... Jesus would say to you, much like he said of the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's today the day you say, God, I repent. I want you. I need you. As a deer pants for water, I need you. You are the bread of life, and I'm starving. God, I want to come to you. Maybe you're here, and, and you're a Christian, and you'd say, you know what? I, I'm walking with Jesus, but I feel exhausted. Could it be that you're not walking alongside a faith family? You need people to build you up. You need people to encourage you. You need people to read the word alongside you. You need people that will say, hey, God has given you these gifts and this is a great place to use them. Would it be that you find a faith family in the Oaks Church or another 
church maybe near you. Enjoy the benefits of having eternal life with God. You see, we come asking the exact same question. And yet let us not be like this man who asked the right question at the right time to the right person and gave the wrong response. May us be those who realize that because he lives, he can offer us eternal life. Let's pray.